Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food and talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Before I introduce this episode, I want to mention that I'm co-organizing an online conference with my colleague Michael Butler. It's called Digital Worlds, a Virtual Workshop. It'll be conducted remotely on April 10th and April 11th, 2021. We're looking for papers that interrogate the way modern digital technology enhances, hampers, or alters our experience of lived worlds. If you'd like more information, visit the workshop's website, digitalworlds.wordpress.com, which is also in the show notes. This is a third episode looking at food sovereignty from different perspectives. This time, I talk with Shane Epting about ways food sovereignty can be pursued in the context of cities right now. Shane Epting is a philosopher of the city who examines the intersection of philosophy of technology and environmental justice, concerned with transportation, infrastructure, and urban futures. He's an assistant professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology. We discuss several strategies for building toward food sovereignty, including vertical farms, participatory budgeting, time banks, and more. In the middle of the conversation, my dog started barking at a FedEx truck, and Shane's dog started barking in response, so they had their own Zoom meeting for a while. I cut it because it got quite loud, but unfortunately then had to lose Shane telling his dog, quiet, those are Zoom dogs, which is now a phrase stuck in my head forever. But now, here's my conversation with Shane Epting. How have you been recently? Uh, I mean, um, I definitely realized, sadly, that my, my quarantine life is so much different than my regular life. Um, uh, in terms of the amount of time I spend, you know, just like alone, you know, doing, you know, philosophy stuff. But I really miss cafes. You know, I miss cafes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I miss grocery stores. You know, like I really miss, we just do like the pickup you know, and, uh, and pick up stuff. And so it's like, if, if, um, if they're out of something, it's like, well, we're not having vegetables this week, you know, I mean, it pushes you <laughs> in a certain creative direction maybe, but yeah, it can be a real problem. So it's, it's sort of perfect. You're fitting in the slot here. I'm talking to a few people in a row about some aspects of food sovereignty. Um, and I'm certainly not going to exhaust that topic with even these few interviews. I'll, I'll come back to it again in the future, I'm sure. But I've asked each person to sort of explain in their own words what they think food sovereignty is, because it's a contested uh, concept. You know, lots of people use it in different ways. Um, In some ways, people debate how they ought to use it, but also just people using it naturally. Everybody thinks they know what they're talking about, but people end up talking about different things. So it can be helpful to get different sorts of senses. So when you think of food sovereignty, what are you usually thinking of? Uh, Usually when food sovereignty comes to mind, it's... uh... Uh, for me, the, you know, the important aspect is to being able to have some, some say-so or control over your food security, right? And being able to uh, be able to determine your, your, your food sovereignty in that capacity. And I don't think, um, uh, for me, one thing I like to play around with food sovereignty is to be able to look at, look at it in terms of degrees. So you could have like, you know, full-bodied, full food sovereignty where you control like all the aspects of it, or you could have like, like kind of like some food sovereignty. I know this notion might not be very popular, but I think that um, when it comes to food sovereignty, it's the question is, you know, are you able to have control? And if so, how much control, 
right, over food sovereignty. Like, you want total food sovereignty, or do you want food sovereignty in some capacity? Just like the ability to uh, to control your uh, your food security. You know, the useful thing about the way you're saying that is there can be a tendency sometimes in the literature to maybe even just accidentally contrast food sovereignty versus food security, because uh, there are people who use the language of food security exclusively. And then people use food sovereignty as a challenge to that model. And so it ends up sounding like you can have food security or food sovereignty, but you're saying that uh, it's actually about having control over where the food security is coming from. Yeah, that's the way I like to like to think about it. Um, And, you know, sometimes when I was given, uh, given a talk on the on the paper, my vertical agriculture paper, to a group of philosophers, and, you know, I think one of the first questions I got was, well, what if food can just be cheaper? You know, and like, what if we just can lower the lower food prices? And I realized they had missed my the entire the entire point of my talk. Like, it's right. not so much about right how cheap can we get food, but it was about all the the moral dimensions that are associated with the food, right? Through and um, like the the thing that really troubles me so much about uh, about food miles. Right, isn't isn't so much about. I mean, I, I care about the the environmental dimensions of uh, food miles and all that sort of stuff. But it's that what what you can't see, you know, what's happening. Like I think there's someone who has a paper about uh, uh, all the ingredients that are necessary to make make a slice of pizza, mm-hmm. right? And where all that comes from. And it's that um, I, I call it globalized opacity because we have so it, it's the situation has become opaque to see where your food comes from. And, you know, depending on uh, where you're situated, th- this problem can look so, can look vastly different, right? So if you're looking at it from the global south, the, the conditions surrounding those kinds of issues, food sovereignty is more about like, you know, human rights and like really serious considerations. You look at it from the global north and, or, and it's, it's a completely different, different situation there, right? And, uh, there's a there's a paper that I love. I forgot, I can't remember the guy's name, but he says like, look, if you wouldn't actually want food sovereignty if you could get it because of how much work it entails. Right. And, you know, anytime people are pushing for democratic con- reforms, I mean, I guess it could be made in bad faith, but it's often just a reasonable critique. Is do you actually want to do all of the bureaucratic work, or do you actually want to attend all of the meetings required to have uh, democratic control over something? Yeah, and that's why I try to qualify or limit myself and. They're like, look, like my argument about uh, vertical farming and, and food sovereignty and all that. It's like, well, if you want this, this is one avenue to that. That might that's something to think about, right? And when I look at systems like, um, I think it's like Sky Greens, right? They overcome a lot of the technical technological challenges to vertical farming in terms of like the energy question and things along those lines. What concerns me are issues about like um, how do we how do we deal with the competing interests? Like if we're going to set up a massive vertical farming system, how do we square that with the fact that we need uh, land for housing? You know, like should, what does it, would it make sense to have vertical farms outside of the city or just farms themselves and keep it separated the way that it, it uh, it's naturally worked out, you know, like the way that uh, Samantha Knoll in her paper on 19th century or uh, what is it called? Environmental ethics in the 19th century or something like that. Um, how she explains it, right? That she does that whole, uh, I think she got this from Paul, Paul Thompson, how she explains the history behind it and then then goes into the ethics from there. And so like that, why we don't have food in the city, uh, 
food being grown in cities anymore. So that's, uh, you know, another interesting thing about your paper um, that we're focusing on, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, uh, just sort of as a, as a focus for conversation, but um, is that you're thinking about food sovereignty in the context of cities. And certainly, both historically, for the use of the term, and I think, I mean, partly from inertia, and then partly just because of who has the capacities to maybe achieve something like food sovereignty, we usually think of it uh, for rural, particularly small-scale, self-sufficiency kind of focused uh, communities. But food sovereignty in a city is a whole different kind of conversation. Uh, and that actually connects. So, you know, you've done a lot of work on philosophy of the city, both uh, in terms of your research and bringing together uh, various philosophers and thinkers around that. So can you kind of explain what you envision philosophy of the city to be and why that's like, why is that, why is that a special term rather than just philosophy and we might mention a city or not? Well, the, the one thing I, I really enjoy about doing research in philosophy of the city is looking at uh, where you have different research strands that aren't so much uh, based on uh, ideas in the literature, but situations in the street, right? And situations that we find occurring in cities and seeing how uh, thinking about them philosophically exposes us to uh, different dimensions of problems that we wouldn't normally think about in certain ways. Like when I look at, uh, let's say, the way that transportation engineers think about uh, problems, right? Uh, their focus is going to be dramatically different from mine, right? which it makes for some interesting conversations sometimes. Uh, and so by being able to look, approaching it through like a philosophy of the city lens, research areas become things like, like elevators become an issue, right? Uh, zoning ordinances become, become an area of focus, right? Or, or things like that from a different perspective. And so urban food becomes, has become its own kind of research strand. And uh, measure, uh, measures for participatory democracy becomes like its own kind of research strand. And so these are the conversations that I've seen emerge. And urban food is one of those things that you really can't, you can't deny because with food or with water, like in the case of Flint, Michigan, you see uh, how uh, this becomes an issue of power. It becomes an issue of morality. And... And so thinking about it philosophically, you get a chance to expose and ex examine the power structures at the, at the micro level, right? Like everybody wants to uh, talk about power like in a, in, a larger, in a larger sphere, but dealing with the city, you're actually dealing with the conditions that affect people's uh, lives on a daily basis. And so by thinking about it philosophically, it requires a little bit of a shift in uh, the way that things are done like in terms of, um, we always want to strive for rigor. That's like the, the main word, right? But you also want to balance rigor with applicability and accessibility, access being accessible to the ideas being discussed. And so uh, one, one thing we always encourage people to do for the uh, philosophy of the city conferences is to assume that people that are going to be in the audience are going to be from uh, you know, students, they're going to be you know, people who work for the city, uh, you know, urban planners, uh, architects, people like that. And it's always led to some really great hallway conversations. So I, I learned a lot of things from, uh, from urban planners, and I should probably listen to them more often, but I was recently, um, well, recently, a few years ago, I was at a conference talking with, uh, with an urban planner about the idea of guerrilla grafting, where you put a, a fruit-bearing branch onto an ornamental tree, and um, they say, well, that's, the, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And I, of course, had to ask why. And he said, well, because if you 
uh, if you have, if you know anything about fruit trees, they produce a lot of fruit. And if you have fruit falling on the ground and no one's picking it up, it's going to bring rats. And if you bring rats and you can bring health problems with that. And so it's not so simple. And besides, who wants to live on a diet of nothing but fruit? And so th there's a reason why we have ornamental trees and not uh, fruit bearing trees. And so I'm not you know, invested in that argument. I mean, guerrilla grafting versus non-guerrilla grafting or that sort of stuff. But it's interesting to see how when you bring philosophers and uh, urban planners together, how you can get a new perspective that uh, strengthens both of them. So there's the need to understand why uh, guerrilla grafting uh, has supporters and also reasons to, to understand why guerrilla grafting uh, might need to come with some reservations. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's what, or it's one of the things that's very interesting about doing philosophy of the city is that the connections that any choices of policy or activism have to other seemingly unrelated social systems is much more immediately felt. You know, like if you're on a small farm or even in a small community and you want to make some kind of change, you know, the ripple effects quickly peter out if the next town over is 40 miles away. But uh, if you, if everybody, I mean, this isn't an original observation, but if a lot of people lived in a city and so when you, very close to each other, in fact, and so when you make any kind of change, you're immediately running into ways other things are happening. So if you want to, you know, as you're saying, think about how to make free food available for anyone that wants it, I think gorilla grafting is cool. Uh, but to think through that and how, how to do it and if it's feasible, um, you're going to have to all of a sudden start thinking about public health. You're going to have to think about all the animals that uh, share cities with us that aren't humans, you know, the co-citizens of New York, like pigeons and rats, uh, you know, and that all has to be part of your, uh, your theory. And I think that's, that's probably true everywhere, but it becomes more obviously true. You have urban planners yelling at you uh, if you don't do that when you're thinking about cities. Yeah. Uh, one, thing I, one thing that attracts me to thinking about cities is that uh, they're also, I mean, they all have kind of a quote-unquote family resemblance, if you will, and, but they're also also different, right? And to where what you find that works in city A might not work in city B, but it is neat when you see something that works, how you can you can try and, and incorporate it and adapt it to a, to a unique environment. And so it's one thing that gets me excited about uh, when I look at um, urban agriculture things that actually work, right? And, and so when I look at the urban, the urban ag initiatives and people that complain about them, it seems like energy is one of the one of the huge issues like well so um like what if you're going to say that um uh, growing food in the city reduces resources well then you have to look at the, you have to examine how much resources does it actually reduce and is it is it worth it and how do you balance those balance those kind of risks but like i uh, said a few minutes ago when you look at a place like uh, like sky greens you look at their at their carbon footprint you're like, wow, this seems like it really works. So how can we do this? How can we do this elsewhere? Yeah, uh, so let's, um, let's uh, back up and give people some information about that. So, you know, you're mentioning uh, vertical farms as one possible way to give more food security in a city and maybe give more food sovereignty in a city. But before we get to that sort of theoretical question, just what is a vertical farm? Is, you know, I mean, if you've never heard that food phrase before, you picture a farm in your head, it's mostly horizontal. You turn it vertical, everything falls off. That doesn't seem like a good system. Yeah, so there's, there's actually two different, um, two different ways to, to conceive a vertical farm. Two things that I've seen in practice. One are like mini towers that are more kind of on the, on the personable or like family size uh, scale where it's an actual, um, 
like a, an apparatus or a device where you grow food uh, as it's stacked up. The, the rows are the, the rows are going higher uh, as opposed to going to lying flat on the ground. And the idea is that you save space and you can get higher yields and, and that sort of thing. And then you also have what will be like food skyscrapers or like food buildings, right? We were growing up and like, and like you could either have it like be a, not a food skyscraper, I take that back, but like a building or something along those lines. And if you, like if you go to YouTube and type in vertical farming, you're going to see a bunch of like, uh, you know, um, artist renderings or videos or things like that, what people imagine them to be. That's really futuristic and cool. And so the idea is that you could have those operating year round uh, with minimal uh, resources needed as compared to you know, what, what you would think, right? Uh, in terms of the, the energy that's required. Like one thing about, uh, I'm not getting paid by Sky Farms. It's in Singapore. I've never been to Singapore or anything like that. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I don't think they, you secretly own a business in Singapore, although that would be, I mean, you'd be the first philosopher with uh, smart business sense that I'd ever met. So that would be impressive. Yeah, yeah, we're we're just we're just concerned about the forms, right? Um, so when you look at the, at their claims, and of course I, ha I haven't verified any of, their, any of their stuff, and I'm not qualified to do it, but they claim that they, they have a very low carbon footprint, and they use gravity and and you know, all these different forms of irrigation and stuff. And you look at their stuff, and you're like, wow, this is really cool. Maybe this could work some places, you know. And so uh, I'm not uh, I'm not saying it's a um, silver bullet solution by any means, but it's something we should definitely entertain and look at for communities that do want to increase their uh, their food sovereignty and they have the the ability to do it in that capacity. It seems like um, I wouldn't want to be just you know, categorically against it, but I'm not going to also sit there and uh, and champion it for, for everybody because some, some places, um, you know, traditional farming methods are working quite well. So, you know, if it's not broke, uh, don't fix it for the sake of just fixing it. Sure. But, you know, and as you point out, um, there's a big difference between different kinds of cities. I like in Havana, Cuba, they grow a huge amount of their own food ever since the USSR stopped supporting them uh, agriculturally and with, you know, massive inputs. And then the U.S. had a oil embargo against them, seeing that sort of as an opportunity. They had to kind of reinvent uh, small-scale agriculture. There's a really good documentary about that that I'll put a link to in the show notes, in fact. But uh, Havana generates some huge percentage of their own food within the city. But you have to realize the climate of Cuba is very different than if you wanted to do that in, you know, Fargo, North Dakota or something in terms of how much you know, growth of a growth season you had. Yeah, and that's the one thing about, you know, vertical farming is that the one advantage it offers, I think, is that you could do it year round because uh, you could control the climate if you could manage to do it right. And one of the things I really enjoy about um, uh, farmer's markets is being able to look at the person, look at the farmer, you know, and talk to them and be able to get that intimate connection with my, with my food. And it would be nice to have that on a, a more of a year round consistent basis. I, mean, I know places that have year-round farmers markets, and it's cold outside and all that. But you get more um, baked goods, candles, you right. know, things of that sort. In the paper, you list at least one reason to be a little concerned about some of the urban agriculture projects, the more traditional ones that we see, like you know, just turning abandoned lots into uh, farms, which is great. And there's a lot of really amazing programs about that. But you have to be very careful about heavy metals and other toxins in the soil. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that uh, I've definitely come across, even, even when it comes to like people who have 
uh, chicken coops and things like that in certain urban environments that you have these, these kind of problems. And, you know, uh, just anecdotally, I've heard some people have success with things like uh, growing sunflowers in a certain plot for, for a amount of time or, or uh, things along those lines. There was a, um, there was a company in, I think, Santa Fe, New Mexico, that they were able to take the, the glass recycling in Albuquerque and turn it into like a, you know, a vegetable like substrate or something like that and be able to use that as a way to grow, grow food and like, you know, glass pebbles. And it seems like that's something you could be able to explore uh, sure. in areas, in areas where the soil needed you know, substantial remediation. Yeah. And, but it's, it is a thing that people don't always think about. Like when I first moved to Michigan for grad school, we started a garden, um, you know, around our house and, uh, had to get the soil tested because, you know, the house is old enough that there was, there certainly had in the past been lead paint on the outside of the house. And, you know, we didn't want to grow. So we, you know, didn't grow too near the, too near the house for flakes that may have fallen off over the years, gotten into the soil. I mean, like it's a whole other kind of concern that you have to think about, but so vertical, you know, sort of integrated farming has some neat possibilities in terms of solving technical problems like growing throughout the year or growing a lot of food in a small footprint. And also, as pointing out a small like energy footprint, but you could certainly do that in a way that didn't give anything like food security or food sovereignty, right? So you could imagine a situation yeah. where some rich person uh, buys up some abandoned land in Detroit. Uh, not that this has ever happened, although listeners may want to Google, uh, <laughs> may want to Google and see if something like that has happened allegedly. You can imagine a situation where some rich person buys up a whole bunch of land in an abandoned, in you know, abandoned lots and things, gets a sweetheart deal from the city, perhaps, and uh, builds these vertical farms, um, and then grows cash crops, you know, flowers maybe, or you know, things that don't actually serve people's food security needs. Um, or grows, you know, expensive organic things that they sell to the richer, wealthier people that are living in the halo around the city, something like that. So you could certainly imagine it being done badly, right? But uh, in your paper, you uh, tie it in order to get it, you know, into a kind of sovereignty, into a sort of participatory democratic way to something that I think is uh, also really interesting, which is participatory budgeting. So can you explain uh, what participatory budgeting is and then see, like, how it might connect back to this? Yeah, thanks. Um, so Participatory budgeting, it was uh, initially started in Brazil and it's taken off globally. And uh, the way I've been studying it is through the participatory budgeting project in, in New York, um, which is something that uh, Michael Menser uh, introduced me to. And the way that, in my understanding of it, is that um, they have city council members turn over a portion of their discretionary funds to community groups. And the community groups, uh, they get together and they vote on the projects they want to see funded. And once they select the project and they, uh, they work with the city to get it implemented and to bring these, um, these projects to fruition, and it's been enormously successful. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, been, uh, it's, it's fascinating to look at how they can increase the quality of local democracy, especially when you look at, I think, um, I think local voter turnout's always kind of, been, uh, kind of been really, really marginal, but this actually increases uh, people's participation in the, in the local government. And some of the projects I've seen, have uh, read about are, you know, uh, kind of uh, community garden initiatives and, and things along those lines. They've had a great, great, all kinds of projects though. Things like uh, Meals on Wheels programs, uh, air, air quality monitoring, uh, 
playgrounds, stoplights, that sort of stuff that, that they just really want to see, right? So it actually puts some power in the, in the in local people's hands. And the way that I look at it is participatory budgeting is a, a technology of democracy, right? It's like a, a technique, right? And so on those lines, if we could study the underlying pattern, uh, maybe we can extrapolate some some guides for how to do it in terms of uh, how to increase uh, people's food sovereignty, right? Because there's a lot of people uh, who don't like where their food comes from, or they don't like the ethical aspects of food production or something like that. And so if they can study this process, they might be able to develop a way to actually gain more control over their food, right? Or at least uh, a portion of, of, of their food supply, or at least, you know, you know, incrementally kind of chip away at what they don't like about their food system. Yeah, I like that. And also, I mean, one of the nice things about participatory budgeting, and I'd love to get Mike Menser on here at some point and ask him about that, um, is not only does it address things that uh, local uh, stakeholders, people who live in the area, know our needs, like they know that there needs to be a stoplight right here, or there needs to be a cover for this bus stop, you know, those sorts of really direct on the ground things that would be very difficult to figure out if you were even a very civic minded urban planner, it's, you know, living in the neighborhood and noticing this as you walk home every night is when you really learn these lessons. So you can address your own needs, but it also pushes you to learn about things, right? It pushes you to learn about how your local government works, as you were saying, you know, increased voting, but just how, uh, how, how your city functions and what you could do to improve it. And so turning that toward food systems. So, you know, you're already aware of some things that bother you about the way food is. Maybe it's the price of organic food versus processed food or whatever it may be, by having the possibility of funding, you uh, then are encouraged to learn more about how these things work, uh, how the food system works and where the best intervention place is. Not to mention learning about who your neighbors are, uh, learning about how to be a democratic citizen, be a democratic participant in decisions. I mean, it can have like a, a lot of neat knock-on benefits. So, um, you know, you mentioned it as a technology of democracy. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier over email before we did this interview, you mentioned that you've actually um, done some service learning with engineering students around vertical farms. Is that right? Yeah. So in, uh, when I was um, a visiting assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, I had was putting together a, a service learning course and an individual who did uh, vertical farming reached out to me because uh, he had found that that paper that you're talking about, and he just wanted to get together uh, to talk about vertical farming, and he was trying to develop a way to uh, set up a uh, a small vertical farming operation, and it ended up not working out because of the the real estate issue. He he wasn't able to uh, secure a lease on this on this land on this on this building. Um, but my students were able to come out and look at what he was, what he was getting into and his proposal, and they were able to um, demonstrate how it would be uh, beneficial for people to open up their own kind of local uh, vertical farms like on a very small scale and be able to produce food and use their engineering skills and background to show how this could actually be uh, a good undertaking. And then they were able to show how they could use arguments in environmental justice to be able to show why this was a you know a morally like good thing quote unquote right and so I, I really think that's um, 
the, the, the future of education and philosophy should take a, take a more engaged approach like that to be able to take people who aren't going to get philosophy degrees but need the value of philosophy to show that what they're doing has um, outcomes for people in the world and that they can, they're actually making the world a better place uh, and not sound cheesy, right, talking about it in, in that way. And so I was fascinated to see the students be able to connect uh, their engineering skills to, you know, philosophical skill sets and be able to, you know, look at somebody who's doing this and put the pieces together and be able to chart a way forward to not only make technological progress, but also show how we can make uh, moral progress in the world. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I teach, um, it's a technology class and uh, you you know, I, we have philosophy majors taking it. Anybody can take it who's interested in thinking through technology in a philosophical way. But um, it's a requirement for every student who's coming through the College of Engineering. So for them, it's satisfying their uh, engineering ethics uh, you know, requirement through ABET. And uh, I have added a service learning component to it as well, where I have them go out into the community, um, assess local problems. You know, often, often these are problems they were aware of themselves because, uh, you know, UTRGV where I teach is we serve quite a number of people who are from the valley and so they're already aware of it but even if they aren't they can talk to the people around them you know talk to the community and find problems and then I have them analyze the situation analyze the problem come up with potential like a proposal for a solution so it could be something like uh, they could do a traffic analysis at us at a and at an intersection think through a technological solution to that probably something like you know, a bike lane or a traffic light, something along those lines, and then make a proposal and propose this to the local city council or, you know, a proposal for a new parking garage on campus, right? There's lots of things that people have proposed and, you know, do that as a project. And they've had uh, a lot of success with it. Students have really enjoyed the opportunity to apply the kinds of skills they're learning in my class, but in all of their classes to communities around them and see ways that they can actually uh, help and when a, when a proposal actually happens, when they actually make a change, there's a huge, you know, obviously that's a huge hit. Yeah, and the, the great thing about it is that you know, I mean, philosophers, we can complain. We're great at complaining, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's great, but they can actually fix it, you know. And so, like, you know, one, one thing that bugs me about philosophy is that um, often it's like, well, we've we've done a great job of identifying the problem, right? Uh, but where do we go from here? And we lack the the know how to actually do something, but you know, non-philosophy students that take these classes, they can do something about it, right? They can go out and change the world. And that's why I think it's, it's fascinating to see these kind of approaches, you know? Um, so like next, uh, I've created a course at Missouri S&T where it's called Creating Future Cities. And it's, it's a revamp of my Philosophy of the City course where uh, instead of just, you know, writing a paper at the end, they actually take this and they, they show how they can actually apply the lessons from the course to the real world. And, you know, like the, these kind of projects are, they're, they're, I mean, they're so inspiring to me because I mean, think about it. Uh, the, the research that we do is so depressing, you know, I mean, it's absolutely, <laughs> that, that is true. You know, and it's like, you, you read about all this injustice in the world and what happens and, it, it's just, it's so depressing and, and be able to have, you know, rays of hope. I mean, this is going to sound horribly cheesy. I apologize, but, you know, to see, you know, the leaders of tomorrow offering, you know, showing that there's hope and they can actually work on these problems. Uh, to me, it's inspiring. It's like, wow, you know, we can do something about this. And so when I see people saying, 
uh, like one of my one of my biggest complaints is they say, well, you're talking about this whole vertical farming thing or whatever. It's just a Band-Aid on, on, a, on a much larger problem, and we need to keep analyzing the problem more. And I'm like, yeah, but can't we just help deliver food right now? Like, can't we spend some time working on providing relief and making people's lives a little better? Like, yeah, so, so, so let's, yeah, let's think about that, because you mentioned that also in the paper. You know, uh, it would be very easy to say, you know, food sovereignty or even just food justice, some kind of just uh, dispersal of food so that people get what they need uh, would require such a profound uh, change in society that basically you shouldn't worry about that. You should worry about fixing all the problems in society. And then when we have some kind of ideal system, then we can, um, you know, feed people. Yeah. And can we, can we dismantle systems of oppression? Right. Yeah, but so the and question is, the, do you need yeah. to do that? Does that have, to, is that a prerequisite that you've dismantled these systems of oppression before you start um, creating food sovereignty? Or can you achieve food sovereignty in an unjust system? Or does pursuing food sovereignty help address the injustices in that system? What's your sort of take on that, on those, you know, positions? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not saying stop, stop questioning or stop examining uh, anything or stop trying to figure out ways to, start, to solve the larger problems. But while we work on the larger problems, can't we provide immediate relief, right? right. Can we provide immediate relief in some capacity that's going to ease people's burdens a little bit? Sure. Right? Like um, one thing that I've always admired about Mary Carmen Marcos's work on uh, on time banking uh, is that um, time banking is a critique of the existing system, and also at the same uh, at the same time offers a way for people to build community, right? So we can't ignore the structures that make community impossible, but at the same time. We have to be able to look at ways to establish communities, and if we can do that through time banking, where where, uh, where people get together, or they have a they have a, a online system where they can donate hours of their time and help each other accomplish goals they couldn't do on their own, like putting together a container bed or gardening or moving or something like that or pet sitting. Um, you can be you you can work on you know fixing the the foundational issues, but at the same time, people need relief. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that food is like a very good sort of lever because it's a vulnerability that we all have. Everybody gets hungry. Um, and in order to do any sort of sizable change to a food system, people need to come together and start working together, right? If you're going to build, you know, this is what we were talking about earlier to maybe tie this back to this idea of philosophy in the city. If you want to do vertical farms, that's going to involve changes in land use. It's going to involve uh, where people shop for food. So you're going to start maybe getting it from a farmer's market or growing it yourself rather than just buying it from a big chain grocery store. It's going to involve the different ways you know your, the people that are around you. I mean, it has a lot of sort of knock-on benefits. So if people want to learn more about some of your work with Philosophy of the City, where would you like to point them? Uh, Philosophy of the City is, uh, is, is a, great, a great, uh, great source. I do have a, uh, a book under contract with Roman Littlefield International uh, on transportation. That's coming out. Ooh, um, congratulations. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, uh, the book's finished. Um, the problem is, is that when I wrote it, all the footnotes were in my mind. Oh, no. So I'm having to go through, and it's taking me a really long time to do this. And it's a very long time. Because uh, I just, at the time, oh, there's so-and-so's paper, I'll reference it. But it's... Um, their citation style is I've gotten so used to doing, you know, papers with the APA style, mm-hmm. um, but they want like Chicago style, sure. right? Which is 
every single, we want to know exactly, is it sentence four, paragraph three, you know? And so they've got to, it's got to be painstaking about it. It's my first book and I have no idea what I'm getting into. So. Well, and you um, foolishly did all the fun stuff first where you actually got your ideas down on paper and now you have homework for yourself. Yeah. And then, you know, to be halfway finished and realize you have an idea that changes things, have to go back and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. yeah so it's, it's been quite, quite challenging just to, you know, just to uh, keep it all together. But, um, well, that, sure. that's a transportation related book. Um, and so wh- I, where can, where can people find you online? Oh, sorry. So if people want to find me online, um, the either shaneepting.com uh, is a great place. I don't really update my site that much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much, I'm not really, I'm not really big on social media. Um, but that's yeah, for the best. I, <laughs> Yeah, I can only I can only say that's I can only compliment that. It's just too uh, it's too depressing, you know. Like I, it's I mean all my so a lot of my friends research like stuff that we research, and so it's like I used to go on social media, and you know to relax or unwind, and it's like oh here's all the stuff you're unwinding from rehash to you in a different package, mm-hmm. and so it's like oh that was that's not that's not um, that's not relaxing at all. It's actually more stressful. Yeah, and so now. I've learned to warn my students that when I tell something, that when I tell them that something is interesting or cool, what I mean is sad and depressing. So like I'll say there was a really interesting news story or there's a really cool documentary. And I mean, there's a very sad news story and documentary that you should read. Yeah. Yeah. It all, it all, it's, it's all incredibly sad. I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember when I was driving through, um, uh, I was going to a small town called Agua Prieta in Mexico and I was, uh, and I stopped outside of Bisbee, Arizona and there was like a, a, a open pit mine and just like staring into this oh, man. open pit mine. It's like so depressing to look at it, you know? It's sure. Like, yeah. It's just, it's, 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 it seems never left my, my mind before, you know? And then yeah. Bisbee its own little weird thing. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, one of the interesting things about cities is that they are simultaneously very strong in that they can compel resources to go toward them, but they're also quite vulnerable, right? They need to get, they need to have the resources from mines and from farming, you know, move in toward them in order to survive. I mean, that's why, you know, your proposal about um, being able to, to have more food sovereignty, to have a little more food independence, and that other kind of gives them food security in the sense that they aren't as dependent on you know, the countryside around them and also can make them make less of that kind of footprint. Yeah. I mean, if you start looking at the, uh, at the numbers coming out of um, things like urban ecology and industrial ecology and uh, the intersection of those, um, it really puts the spotlight back on environmental ethics to say like, look, there's two sides to this coin when it comes to preservation and conservation and, and those conversations in terms of uh, if cities I think cities consume um, might be getting this wrong, 60 to 80% of the world's resources. And, and so if you can make your cities more sustainable, it's going to cut back on demand from that end. So if you decrease demand, you, you can you know, cut off supply or you decrease the need for the supply. And so you can preserve nature right, by, by making your cities more environmentally efficient in that regard. But then you have to also balance it with social justice and, and environmental justice and, uh, and those kind of considerations. And so once you can do that, you know, that's why I've always, people say things, they think I, because I do philosophy of the city, I have like, the, you know, the answer to the riddle, what's a just city? And I think I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that question. Like what is, um, 
what is a just city? Because I think about justice in the city. I mean, first of all, you have to define what's the city and what is justice, right? So if you look at the look at the first question, uh, you have people that say the city is more like a technology or a device. And then you have people like uh, Achille Varzi that says the city is like a process. Like I think he says that a city is like a rock concert and we're all participating in it. And so you have those debates and then you have that question, you know, well, what is justice, which you've never you know, come to a consensus on, uh, especially when it comes to the particulars. And so trying to combine those two and expect an answer to me just seems um, good luck with that, right? And so I think about it, you know, like a mirage, like that we, 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 we have to strive towards it and we can never stop going towards justice or pursuing justice, but the closer we get to it, we're never going to actually have it because the nature of a city means that the city always changes. And so the conditions for justice are always going to be in flux as well. And so it's like, well, what do we do? Do we, do we um, stop pushing this boulder up the hill? Like, no, we have to do it because it's the right thing to do and it's intrinsically good in and of itself. And so that's how I look at that, that situation is like, well, the same thing for sustainability, right? I mean, how do we uh, actually label something sustainable when you have to consider right, all the different pillars of sustainability and how they come into play? And along the, along the way to answering those questions, you have all kinds of pitfalls that you, once you get into the weeds of the literature, uh, you realize that you're asking some really challenging questions that have, challenge, that have challenging questions that, that are underneath them. And it's like, but what else do you do, right? You just got to keep on, keep on trucking and, and do as best you can. That's why, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to ignore the foundational issues, but at the same time, I want to provide relief. And so how do we do that? And that's, that's why, you know, I like, I like coupling uh, philosophical exploration with, right, engineering and architecture and urban planning and, and something along those, those kind of things. Yeah, just thinking, I mean, Sometime I should get somebody on here to discuss ideal theory versus non-ideal theory. But this idea of having to work in, in our non-ideal world, um, yeah, I think uh, there's certainly a huge need for it. But, and that was a perfect, uh, perfect way to wrap up a good thought on your part. So let me just say uh, thank you very much, Shane. I really appreciate you participating uh, in this and taking some time to talk to me. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Ian. That was my conversation with Shane Epting. Links are in the show notes, including the article of his we were discussing, as well as Shane's late-night snack recipe you'll want to check out. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. Follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today.